Well, kids, uh, I want to begin this morning uh, by asking a really quick question uh, for you, of you. Uh, If you were on a playground or at a slumber party or hanging out with your friends at the park somewhere, just if if you were with all of your friends and one of them said something that sounded like a, a totally crazy claim, right? Like your four foot tall friend said, I could dunk a basketball on a 10 foot goal. Right. Or your friend that that always acts real tough, but isn't really that tough, said, you know, I could lick that cactus and it wouldn't hurt my tongue. Right. Or or the the one that always falls asleep first at a sleepover says, I could stay up all night long if I wanted to or whatever it may be. If if one of your friends makes a really crazy claim that, that you that you find hard to believe and you're pretty sure it's not true. What are the two words that will almost always come out of your mouth in response to such a crazy claim? Kate, I saw your hand first. Do it. it. Yes, exactly right. I was thinking prove it, but do it is the exact same thing. Prove it, right? That's right. When someone says something that sounds crazy and that we doubt if it's true, the only way we would ever believe Uh, That the crazy words they are saying is true is if they could prove it by doing it, right? And that's kind of what we're talking about this morning, kids, in church as we uh, continue in our Epiphany sermon series entitled, Prove It. The Epiphany is a season that's all about how Jesus has been made known, how he's been revealed throughout all of the world. And as Jesus was being made known, as he was being revealed in all of the world, there were some pretty incredible things that were said about Jesus. Jesus even said some pretty incredible things about himself. Maybe the most outrageous of those claims was that Jesus said that he was God. He said that he and the Father were one, claiming to be God. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a bit of a crazy claim. A man claiming to be God. How in the world are we expected to believe that that's true? Well, this morning we're looking at a story where Jesus proves it. He backs up his words with actions that prove that his claims were true. And so kids, on your activity sheets, if you have one, if you don't have one, they're in the back. But on your activity sheets, during the sermon, I want you to listen for the way that Jesus proved that this claim that he was God is true. And then on the bottom of the sheet, there's a space you can draw a picture of this event. Or or you can think of any other stories in the Bible that prove that Jesus is true and draw a picture of that too. Okay? And for everyone else, I want to invite you, if you have a Bible... To open them with me to Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 23, as we consider together this morning how Jesus proves that he is God and why it matters to us. This story picks up with Jesus and his disciples getting into a boat and heading out across the Sea of Galilee when a great storm arose on the waters. Now, we know that it was a great storm because the boat that Jesus and his disciples in was being swamped by the waves of the storm crashing over the edge of the boat. Mark's account of this event seems to apply that it wasn't just one wave or two, but this was happening over and over and over again 
because the, the, it was swamping the boat. He, he describes the boat as actually beginning to fill up with water. Luke says that there was so much water that it filled the boat that the disciples were physically in danger. This wasn't just an afternoon shower where the boaters were inconvenienced by a challenging wind and some annoying precipitation. This was a great and dangerous storm. And the reason that this context of a storm is significant is because storms and the forces of nature that cause them are one of the very few things in this world that are completely beyond human control. I mean, think about it. Even with with all of the scientific achievements and advancements that have happened throughout the centuries up to our current day and age, uh, to the point where our own WRAL has a dual Doppler 5000, right? Which allows us to observe the intensity of precipitation inside of the storm using dual polarization technology. Which combines conventional horizontal scanning with simultaneous vertical pulses. Allowing the radar to identify different types of precipitation. Using the shape and the size and the speed and the location of particles within the storm. Even with all of that technology. Which is without question the most advanced weather technology that exists in the world today. Even with all of that. All that we can do with regard to the weather is make wildly unpredictable and often unreliable and quite honestly disappointing snow forecasts, right? With all of the technology in the world, we can only kind of, sort of, predict the weather. With other forms of technology, such as solar panels and wind turbines, but we are learning to harness the weather, to use it for our good. But with all of the technological advancements that have been made throughout the centuries, we still haven't made an inch of progress in our ability to actually control the weather. The possibility of controlling the weather, like causing rain to start and stop, directing the course of a storm, that always has been and to this day remains either squarely in the realm of the divine, as something that only God could do. Or for those who don't believe in the divine, it simply remains an impossibility. The weather simply is uncontrollable. There's nothing we can do about it. Either God can do it or no one can do it, but there are no other choices. Now, most cultures and civilizations throughout history have attributed this power to a deity. The Romans had a god named Jupiter who ruled the sky, controlling thunderstorms and lightning and weather in the air. The Greeks looked to Zeus as their god of the storms. Ancient Norse cultures believed that Thor could control the storms. Finnish civilizations looked to Ukko as their weather god. The Aztecs had a hurricane god named Tezcatlipoca. The Chinese had Yu Shi, a rain god. The Mayans called their rain god Chak. Hindus looked to Indra as king of the heavens and controller of the storms. Knowing that weather is beyond human control historically, people have looked to the gods for this power. 
And it's not just ancient and pagan civilizations that do this. The Jews and Christians do as well. That's what we did this morning in our Old Testament readings. In the responsive psalm, we affirm that it is the Lord that commands and raises the stormy winds. And the Lord makes the storms be stilled and causes the waves of the sea to be hushed. In Jonah chapter 1, we read that it was the Lord who hurled a great wind upon the sea and who caused the sea to cease its raging. It's not just humans throughout history who have attributed the control of the weather to God. God himself acknowledges that this power is his and his alone. In the book of Job, Job had suffered a terrible loss at the hands of a great wind. And throughout the book, he wonders why it has happened. And he cries out to God for an answer. At the end of the book, Job finally gets his audience with God, but it doesn't go as he expected. In chapter 38 of Job, the Lord answered Job from out of the whirlwind. And he said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Have you entered the storehouses of snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of hail? What is the way to the place where light is distributed? Or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightning? On and on and on it goes. And God's point in all of that is this. That he is the one who is in control of all of these things. Humans have no ability to understand or to control them. But God created them and he controls them all. And that reality, that it is either God alone who controls the weather, or else the weather is altogether uncontrollable, depending upon your beliefs. That reality is that reality which makes this account from Matthew chapter 8 so incredibly profound. Because when the storms arose on the Sea of Galilee that day, and when the winds began to blow, and when the waves began to rise... When the elements of God's creation were whipped into such a fury that those who were experiencing them were in danger and afraid for their lives. At that moment, they knew that either God was their only hope for help or else they had no hope at all. But either way, they knew there was no mere mortal who could stop that storm and who could stop those waters from swallowing them into the depths of the sea. There wasn't a man alive who could do it then. There isn't a man alive who could do it now. This is solely in the realm of God, or else it is altogether impossible. Those are the only two options. Which is why, when in the midst of that storm, as Jesus rebuked the winds and the sea, saying to them, peace, be still. And they actually obeyed his voice. The disciples marveled. They knew that what they witnessed in that moment wasn't humanly possible. 
And yet before their eyes they beheld a man with the power of his voice who was able to control nature. And so with a measure of fear, of shock and awe and wonder and mystery and marvel over what they had seen, they asked themselves, what sort of man is this? That even the wind and the seas obey him. They knew in that moment that there was something altogether different about Jesus. What sort of man is this, they wondered. It's a really important question to ask. It's an even more important question to answer. What sort of man is Jesus? What sort of man is it that even the uncontrollable winds and the uncontainable sea obey the command of his voice? What sort of man is this? If you've never really wrestled with that question, if you've never really settled the answer to that question in your heart, today is the day to do it. Who is this man, Jesus? What do you believe to be true about him? The way that this event, the calming of the seas, answers that question for all of us. Both for those who from around the world and throughout time have looked to the gods for the control over the weather. And for those who don't believe in God and assume that the weather is simply uncontrollable. This event answers the question of who is Jesus for both of those groups and for you and for me in the exact same way. The calming of the storm answers that question by exclaiming, this is your God, wrapped in flesh, who has come to save you. There really is no other answer. If this event actually happened, if Jesus actually calmed the storms, and and there is strong evidence to believe that the words of this book are true, eyewitnesses experienced it, they testified to it publicly, and many of them later gave their lives to stand for the veracity of it. Who would die for what they knew was a lie? If this event actually happened, And Jesus actually did control the weather. There really is no other answer to the disciples' questions of what sort of man is this? Who is this man? This is your God. And just as the wind and the waves obeyed him, you should too. When we read through the rest of this story of his life, We see that this wasn't a one-time event that Jesus performed. A few chapters later, Jesus walked on the water and calmed the waves for a second time. In response to that experience, the disciples no longer wondered regarding his identity. But that time they declared, truly, you are the Son of God. His actions leave no other options. Throughout the gospel stories... Demonstrating a power that belongs to God and to God alone. Jesus controlled the very elements of nature, of creation. Proving himself to be God in the flesh. That is what this story 
truths. And the reason that it matters, the reason that this is such good news, is because of the implications that this event has for all of our lives. For what this story from Matthew chapter 8 means for us, is that if Jesus can calm the storms on the Sea of Galilee, then He can calm the storms that threaten you and me as well. And this story helps us to understand the reality of that hope in a number of different ways. First, it reminds us that the storms that we face in life can be really scary. I think this story actually honors our humanness in that way. We see that in this story as the disciples in the boat are crying out to Jesus in fear that they are perishing. This is real fear that they are experiencing. And so I want to take a very brief moment to acknowledge that important reality this morning. Sometimes the storms that we go through in life can be terrifying. Sometimes they will cause you to feel like you are dying. Sometimes you will be dying. These are real raindrops the disciples faced. Real winds, real waves, real bolts of lightning, real water breaking into and filling up their boat. Real danger, as Luke records it. The storms that we face in life are real. And they can be terrifying. And a huge part of the reason why going through the storms of life is so terrifying is because in addition to the unknown of what's on the other side of the various storms of our lives, are we going to make it through it or not? In addition to that is the reality that we are not in control of the storms that we face as we go through. The winds of the storms are often too strong to control. When your health fails, there's often nothing that you can do about it. When a relationship is in trouble, you can never control the other person's reactions or responses. When the stock market crashes or the economy tanks, causing wealth to slip away, those are forces that are often far beyond your control, which you can do nothing about. Whatever it may be, the storms that we face in this life are real. And because we are human and can't control them, they're scary to us. But they're not scary to the Lord. And that's the second really important implication of this story for our lives. Our storms seem scary to us, but they are not scary to Jesus. We see that in that while the disciples were freaking out over the storm that was raging all around them, Jesus was asleep in the boat. Now, in Mark's account of this event, the disciples interpreted Jesus' napping during the storm as a sign that he didn't care about them. And we can often make the same mistake. When we face the various storms of our lives and when we cry out to Jesus for help, and when he doesn't seem to answer quickly enough or in the way that we would want for him to, we often jump to the same conclusion that the disciples did. When they complain, teacher, do you not care? That we are perishing. We often consider the apparent silence from heaven as a lack of care or concern from God. But that's not at all what's happening here. Instead, Jesus' napping indicates something else entirely. For throughout the scriptures, the ability to sleep, to lay down one's head and rest, 
often represented that someone was in a state of peace and security. Psalm chapter 4 says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. The fact that Jesus was asleep in the boat didn't mean that he didn't care about what was going on with his disciples. It just meant that he wasn't anxious or worried about the storm that was raging around him. He was at peace in the midst of the storm. Because he knew he had an authority over the storm. And that with a word, he could still the storm. With one word, he can silence our storms too. And that's really important for us to remember. Because when the storm rages, it will feel like everything is out of control and that will make you anxious. But remembering that Jesus isn't anxious or surprised or worried or in doubt about the outcome, but instead that he is in control of everything that's going on, that brings an incredibly steadying reality into our seemingly unsteady moments. And in light of that steadying reality, Jesus calls his disciples to faith. That's the final implication of this story that I want to highlight. We're called to have faith in the midst of the storms. We see that in verse 26 of Matthew chapter 8, where, but while the storm winds were still raging all around them, Jesus spoke to his disciples and he said to them, Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. And it's really important to notice that it wasn't after Jesus had calmed the storms that he encouraged them to have faith. It wasn't after everything had calmed down and they knew that they were safe. It wasn't after they were certain that the storm was behind them. Instead, it was in the very heart of the storm that Jesus called them to faith. It was right in the center of the storm that Jesus called them to trust in him. Before he even ever begins to address the wind and the waves, before he ever even begins to deal with the circumstances of the storm that is causing their fear, while he allows the storm to continue to rage, the first engagement by Jesus is with his disciples' hearts. In the midst of the storm, in the midst of it, he calls them to faith. Faith that he is with them. Faith that he is good. Faith that he is powerful enough to care for them. Faith that he is in control over the circumstances of their lives. Faith that in his presence and with his help, they are going to be okay no matter the outcome of the storm. This is what Jesus wants for his disciples. This is what he wants for you. That no matter what is going on in your life, You will have a deep and abiding faith where you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that regardless of the outcome of the storms, that you are going to be okay because God is with you. You are going to be okay because the one who controls the storm is with you in the midst of the storm. That as Psalm 46 says, you will not fear Even though the earth gives way or the waters roar and foam or the mountain falls into the heart of the sea, even if that happens and the world as you know it is falling away, you will know that you are okay 
Because God is your refuge and your strength. A very present help in the midst of the storm. That is what Jesus wants for you. That kind of hope, that kind of peace, that kind of security, that kind of stability, that kind of rest, even in the chaos of our lives. And in order to experience all of that, Jesus calls his disciples to faith. And the reason that we can have that kind of faith, the reason that we can have that kind of confidence and certainty and hope and trust in the person of Jesus in the midst of the storms of our lives isn't actually because of all of the storms that he has stopped. But ultimately it's because of the one storm that he didn't stop. You see, the reality is, is there is only one storm that we will ever face that truly has the power to undo us all. There is only one storm brewing that we should ever really be afraid of. It's the storm of God's wrath that is revealed from heaven against all of our ungodliness and all of our unrighteousness. From the heinous crimes that we commit like murder and adultery all the way down to the careless words that we speak, the dishonoring thoughts that we think, and the little white lies that we tell. There is a storm of God's wrath that is coming to bring judgment upon it all. And rather than stop that storm from blowing. Because that storm ultimately needs to blow in order for there to ever be real justice, in order for things to ever really be made right. So rather than stop that storm from blowing, Jesus chose to stand in the path of the storm and to take the full brunt of that storm and to let that storm run its full course on him instead of us. Jesus experienced that terrible storm to its very last drop so that we wouldn't have to. Romans chapter 5 describes it this way. That God showed his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. On the cross, Jesus endured the storm of God's wrath in order to save us from it. He sheltered us in the midst of that storm. And he, our shelter, was torn apart. But we, hidden in him, were spared. And that's why we can have faith in him in the midst of all of the other storms of life that we'll ever face. If Jesus loved you enough to bear the storm of God's wrath for you, if he protected you through the one storm that would certainly undo you, Why would he fail to protect you in any other storm that threatens? He protected you through the ultimate storm. He will protect you through the others as well. This is his promise to us. He is our refuge, our shield, our shade, our tent, our strong tower. He's our cover in the storms of life. So run to him. Hide in him. Cling to him when the winds begin to swirl and do so knowing that when everything else is blown away, he will remain stable and strong. Church, 
in calming the storm, Jesus proved his divinity by his control over nature. And by enduring the storm of God's wrath for you, he proved his goodness and his love. And when you put those two together, that God himself loves you so much that he wrapped himself in flesh to come and to be with you so that he could save you. That gives us the courage to face any storm of this life with faith and trust and peace and hope and even joy. Knowing that God is with us in the midst of the storms of this life and that he will keep us safe. So let us run to him for God's glory and for our good. Amen.